Yes, there we go. Uh, my question is, uh, to your knowledge, where would, could you describe preparationism and then what you think are the historical origins, where it originates, when, where and when, and maybe even the theological or origination, theological, psychological originations of it, origins of it? <clears throat> I think preparationism began in the Garden of Eden. Um, actually, um, I think the default of the human heart, and sadly, yet the incipient default of the regenerate, redeemed heart, is that the more we do and the better we do, uh, the more righteous we will become and the more pleasing to God we will be. Now, there's truth in that. God loves the righteous. <coughs> Excuse me. God loves the righteous. The danger is that we allow um, that incipient, I think it was Robert Trail, late 17th century Scottish Puritan, who said there's an Arminian lurking in every Christian's heart. Um, and I think Adam and Eve in the garden, when they hide, uh, are betraying that. Preparationism is, is linked to that. It's the, it's the thought that we can, in some measure, prepare ourselves to receive the grace of God. Now, a lot of these heresies begin with an initial good thought. The good thought being, God hates the unrighteous. God calls and summons us to repentance. The problem is that it becomes dislocated from its gospel soil. I find that with, with modern day aberrations, federal vision, new perspective, uh, they both begin with I think, godly concerns. Take Tom Wright. <clears throat> he, he's concerned that people rightly understand what it means to be justified before God. That, that's a godly, righteous concern. Um, he's concerned, as Norman Shepherd was concerned, if you know that name, Westminster Norman Shepherd, that many evangelicals live in the false delusion that because I have been justified by grace alone through faith alone, um, my sins matter, but they don't matter that much. Um, so the, the early Puritans, Thomas Hooker in particular, who influenced Edward Fisher, Edward Fisher was probably converted through Thomas Hooker who came to uh, New England uh, 16... Whenever he came, when did he come? 27, 28. Um, he's reacting against a latitudinarian theology that dominated the face of the church in England. And the danger is when you react against something, you go to the opposite extreme. So the latitudinarian uh, Episcopalian, semi-reformed view was um, as long as you subscribe the 39 articles, as long as you come to church, as long as you receive the Holy Supper. And Thomas Hooker and others seriously realized how tragically defective that was. And so they, they impressed on people, without holiness no one will see the Lord. Again, a glorious truth, Hebrews 12. But the way it happened in terms of preaching was um, the elect are known by their seriousness with regard to their sin, 
if you show that you're serious with regard to your sin, you can then go to Jesus Christ. You can then go to Jesus Christ. And that was a minor note, not a major note in Puritanism. But I think it reflects the, <clears throat> the default, not just of every human heart. People want to, in every corner of the earth, people want to appease the gods, give them offerings, go here, do this, have a pilgrimage here, a pilgrimage there, say your prayers. I, I think there are good Christian people who have been caught into that mesh, uh, you know, uh, daily devotion, I hope we all have daily devotions, but daily devotion can become a work instead of the overflow of a response. So it's, it got Puritanism a bad name. Um, and Jonathan Edwards, of course, struggles with it in New England in Becomes, becomes a pastor in what, 1722, 23, and he struggles uh, with that and the halfway covenant. I mean, it's all kind of meshed together. But I think I would say um, at the fall, what sin does is to make you think that you must do something before God will be gracious to you. And we can't do anything until God is gracious to us. And maybe others want to chip in and comment or say, I don't agree with that, whatever. We're here to learn together. So don't feel reluctant to say, I'm not sure about that. Or if you want to add something or subtract something. Mr. Vegas, you have to... Follow your own example and use yes, the mic. Sir. <laughs> so, the, so the question I have and sort of follow up on that is it's always a condition of the human heart in some sense. We see it. You showed us how we see it in history. What's, what's sort of the predominant way you're seeing that come out in the preaching of ministers contemporarily? Well, I don't, I don't hear a lot of Ministers, I'm not a, <clears throat> I'm not a sermon taster. If if I do listen to sermons, it tends to be Sinclair Buchanan Ferguson. Um, I think <clears throat> in listening, sorry, there's something in my throat. <clears throat> we can drift into a how-to mentality. Um, this is how we become godly. Uh, this is how we take mortification of sin. Now, um, John Owen in volume six has the most wonderful, searching, humbling, insightful exposition on if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And Owen details uh, this is a kind brother coming to me, a bearded wonder. Thank you, brother. Mm. Before they call, I will answer. <clears throat> now, Owen, <clears throat> before Owen gets there, actually, before he gets there, but actually he does it at the end, but the end is actually the subtext of the beginning. All my thinking. So Owen says, how do we mortify sin? And you think, well, you've just told us in the previous 93 pages. And he ends up by saying, you mortify sin by going to the gospel. And you think, oh, that's good. That's right. <laughs> Not for relief of your sin, but to aggravate it the more. So, the way I kill sin, so I go to the gospel, but not for relief, <clears throat> not to receive pardon first. I go to the gospel 
to have my sin aggravated. And what Owen does now is wonderful. He says, you go to the gospel and you say, my Savior shed his precious blood to kill that sin. Should I continue in it? My Holy Father sent his Son into the world to be born of a virgin, to crush that lust that I'm entertaining. Shall I continue to entertain it? It's, I, th I think it's one of the most moving passages in the whole of Owen. And he's saying that, yes, there are how-to things we have to say. You know, um, it's like parents who are struggling with their children in terms of their spiritual nurture or whatever. Paul doesn't start with children. He starts with wives and husbands. And he says to husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He, the gospel's front and center. And I think the danger is we can, I think I've touched, touched it in passing, we can lapse into an evangelical moralism. I hate, well, I don't read how-to books on principle. I just don't read them. I'm not saying there are not good how-to books. I'm, I, I know, I know it. assuredly there are. I just won't read them. I've never read a book on marriage deliberately because I'm pretty sure 99.9% .9 of the time I'll be depressed because marriage isn't rocket science. Love your wife, which means serve her to the point of laying down your life for her. And wives, submit to your husbands in everything, not because they're perfect. You might be brighter than them, holier than them, more spiritual than them, more, more gifted in speaking than them. But the Lord God commands you to submit to them in everything. Someone once heard Lloyd-Jones's uh, wife saying that, and the, the woman replied, so you're telling me if my husband wakes me at four in the morning demanding ice cream, I have to go and get it? She said, yes. And then phoned for the doctor because he's clearly out of his mind. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> so the danger of lapsing easily into, here are six things to do. Um, rather than, let me hold up to you the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we're not to say here are six things to do. I'm, I'm not saying that. But it's how it's tinctured, to use Boston's word, how it's tinctured. Um, so, yeah. I was, Hello? I was wondering if you can elaborate more on, because uh, you describe Arminianism in that day as a many-headed hydra. So I was just wondering uh, how Arminianism was expressed differently then than it is now. It's always struck me as being very striking that John Owen's first published work was, Chad? Yeah display of Arminianism. He doesn't write first on the glory of Christ, communion with God, the Holy Spirit, mortification, spiritual mindedness, the duties of pastors. A display of Arminianism. And the reason why the reformers before them, because it's true for them, and the Puritans were so impassioned in confronting Arminianism was number one, it robbed God of his sovereign glory. Number two, it robbed Christ of his atoning glory. Number three, it elevated man to be a co-equal with God at some level. They hated synergism. They hated autosaterism. And it had social and political implications. That's why I called it many-headed hydra. 
Because when you elevate man, he gets full of himself. He, he thinks he's better than he is, and he uh, seeks to uh, impose himself and his will at whatever level, uh, instead of uh, humbly recognizing from him, through him, and to him are all things to him be the glory. So you end up with political systems that essentially, while acknowledging God, have actually no room for God. So for, for the Puritans and the Reformers, Arminianism was theologically aberrant, uh, soteriologically profoundly aberrant. It was politically aberrant because it intruded into uh, the sovereignty of God not just over the church, but over the nations. You know, one God, uh, uh, one nation under God. That's your mantra, isn't it? You don't live up to it, do you? <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, that's why they, they, they just saw it as a hydra that eventually kills true religion. Um, Arminian is, you know, reformed Christianity can kill religion. We can isolate the doctrines of grace from their biblical locus. What I mean by that is, and I've used this illustration before, Chad, I'll just repeat myself. When I was in Mississippi for the first time, America for the first time, 1992, I was in the Church of Scotland, a.k.a. Uh, PCUS, very liberal. Uh, we were the only congregation between Glasgow and the English border with no women, no women elders. Now it's, who knows what happens. So I had a sabbatical at RTS in Jackson, and this small Presbyterian church, PCA church in Mississippi Delta, heard about me. And through Douglas Kelly and Sinclair Ferguson asked if I would come and be their pastor during the months we were there. I said, that would be a privilege. Well, the presbytery rightly said, well, you're coming from the Church of Scotland. Now, and although Dr. Ferguson and Kelly have said you're okay, um, would you mind sitting the exams and doing the vivas? Oh, I said, no, I like exams. Exams are fine. So I sat all the exams. They weren't, they weren't onerous. Um, then I had two vivas, and one of the questions was, are you a five-point Calvinist? Now, my initial reaction was to say, absolutely not. I would be embarrassed to say that I were. But I thought, that's not a good answer. So I said, well, I find the question a little demeaning, both to Calvin and to myself. Would you like me to explain? Yeah. Well, I thought, in for a penny, in for a pound. And I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not a confrontationalist, but I quite like engaging people in debate. And I, I said, you know, and Chad's heard me say this, but I said, taking five bones out of a body of 206 bones or something and saying, aren't these bones wonderful? You'd think. I said, in their natural locus, their glorious truths, abstracted, they could become clinical, cold, um, formulaic. I said, and by the way, if you'd ask Calvin, are you a Calvinist? He would say, I'm a Trinitarian, Christ-loving Christian. So, Reformed Christianity can kill vital, affectional, experiential religion. Arminianism, Arminianism, because it starts with man and elevates and says there is some part of man that uh, has not been radically affected by the fall, it promotes an, an incipient attitude of um, essentially, ultimately, human arrogance. And that's why the reformers uh, and the Puritans were so passionate 
in opposing Arminianism because it had all of these, they, they saw where the trajectory would lead, you know? Um, and so they sought to kill it before it could produce its ungodly spawn. So, so I, I don't mean to be offensive, uh, but that's just the way it is. You know, <laughs> you know history, if, you know, we, we, we live in a world where our children are growing up ahistorical. And, you know, you read the Marrow controversy and you think, oh, I, I think Athanasius dealt a wee bit with that in the early 4th century. And I'm sure Basil did, and I know Leo did in his tome. And, um, you know, what goes around comes around, plus sa chance, plus la même chose. You know, things seem to change. They don't really change. Um, and a sense of history can help the church keep focused um, Tom Wright comes along with the new perspectives on Paul, and he's building on, you know, he's building on the work of James Dunn and uh, the Swedish guy. Um, names escape me. Uh, but, you know, Tom Wright's saying nothing new. He's saying what Cardinal Contarini was saying at the beginning of the Council of Trent, 1545. Uh, that essentially there are two justifications that there's a justification by faith alone, and there's a justification the last day according to works. Um, I listened to, uh, anybody listened to Robert Barron, who's now moved from California to New York, Roman Catholic, diocesan bishop? He is a fabulous speaker. He really is worth listening to in all range of subjects. And he gave this talk on Luther, 15 minutes long on Reformation. I think it was Reformation Day. And I smiled. I'll tell you why I smiled in a minute. For 14 minutes, it was absolutely brilliant. The church needed Luther. Luther was a wake-up call. The church was moribund. The church had drifted from the faith. And you're thinking, this is a Roman Catholic. I just sat and smiled the whole way through. And then it came right at the end. Sting in the tail, always a sting in the tail. But Luther failed to realize that we have a part to play in our justification. It was, it was beautifully done, it was beautifully crafted. And he's like Tom Wright, he, he's a, a better, actually, Tom Wright's a brilliant lecturer, but Robert Barron is the best face of Romanism because the sting is always just in the tail. Yeah, so um, I'm not quite sure where that got me, but um, yeah. yeah. I have a question for you. So um, how would you share the gospel with an unbeliever? Where would you start? Well, let me say the obvious thing, and then I'll tell you where I'd start. It depends who they were. Um, Today, I've discovered that if people, you know, you're on a plane or you're in an airport and you've got chatting, oh, what do you do? And you can say, I'm a pastor, that kills a conversation. I'm a theological professor, that really kills a conversation. So I say to them, I teach the art of living blessedly. which is actually William Perkins, the father of Puritanism. And they'll say, oh, are you a new age guru? And you say, well, in a sense I am, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> when I speak to someone who is an unbeliever, um, I, I might, there are various things I'll say. I'll say, why are we here rather than not here? I might say to them as I, I, I I'm a qualified Vantillian. Um, I think Vantill sometimes, un, you know, pygmies throwing pebbles at giants, but I think Vantill 
underplays the remnants of the Imago Dei. I've sometimes said to people, you tell me you're an unbeliever. You know that's a lie up front. You know that God is, but you don't like it. Romans 1, 18 to 20. You suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I don't use that language. I just say, you're telling me I'm a liar. You say, well, I am. Um, not because I think you're out to deceive me, but because I think you've been deceived. You've believed a lie. You know that God is. But it's not convenient. Um, and, and I think sometimes, you know, what I'll never do is, I'll never say now, there was a fellow called Thomas Aquinas, and he had five proofs of God. The Bible nowhere. The, you know what the Bible does? It says, let me tell you a story. That's what the Bible does. And it's a story about the creator of the cosmos who gave his son for the redemption of the world. Let, let me tell you about that story. The Bible never talks about ontological proofs, um, the optimus, um, perfectissimus. Um. I think there's, there's decent answers from atheists to the five Aquinas proofs. I keep clear of that. But depending who people are, I, I keep coming back to this, tell me why I'm here rather than not here. Or I might, I, I, I was asked to give a talk in Cambridge when I was minister in the Presbyterian Church there. Can we be good without God? And I've sometimes said to people, what does it mean to be good? Are you good? Oh, try to be. Oh, well, that's really good. Um, what do you think good is? And it's amazing. I was in Cambridge. I couldn't believe how unthinking the vast majority of people were at that university. With Oxford and Harvard, well, it's been top three in the world. I'd meet students, and they just would look at me. We don't live in a thinking world. We live in an irrational world, an Alice in Wonderland, fable land. Um, I just keep telling people, I believe the science. You know the mantra throughout COVID, we believe the science. People tell me about Jen. I said, I just believe the science. Uh, if you've got a penis, you're a man, and if you don't, you're a woman. Um, that's the science. Um, you may not like it. That's up to you. Uh, you. You may reject it. Well, you're free to do that. But it doesn't gainsay the truth of it. So I sometimes think I'm not as bold as I should be. Um, you know, the, often Acts 17, Paul begins very beguilingly, doesn't he? Doesn't he? Um, you know, I'm looking around. Although, isn't it interesting that Luke tells us that Paul was paroxysmed? Isn't that the verb? Remember? Paroxysmed with anguish when he saw this, this, these idols. And then he says, but he's, he's very, you know, he starts where people are. And oh, it's like Jesus at the woman. Uh, at the well in John 4, he, he starts where she is. He asks for water. Um, he seeks to connect with the woman at the most basic level of life. But you know the fascinating thing is, I'm getting a bit diverted from your very good question. Jesus asks, she says to Jesus, why do you ask me for a drink? Jesus didn't ask for a drink of water. He says, woman, dos pain. He issues a command, it's an imperative. Uh, give me a drink of water. But she hears the command as a request. Um, maybe it's reading too much into the text, but I think the way the, way the Lord spoke, how he spoke made its mark on people. She hears a command, but it seems like a request. So, you know, speak the truth in love. So, I think we need to listen to people. That's very important. I often tell my students, 
who, who can quantify it, but one of the things we need to pray much for is the grace to listen and the grace to, live, to listen sympathetically to people and to respond to the comments and questions people ask, not first with what you think they need to hear. So, that's a ramble, but thank you. Uh, what was your um, definition of the hypothetical universalism that you said was important on the uh, marrow issue? Talked enough. Chad, you can answer that. Well, good mic. <laughs> well, very simply, hypothetical universalists begin with a very good and right desire. How can I meaningfully, credibly preach the gospel? How can people take seriously that God will of all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth? That can only be because, in some sense, Christ died for them paid the penalty of sin for them. So they want to ground the free offer of the gospel, not in God's command to go and preach the good news. They want to ground it in what they believe of necessity has to be the case, that Christ, uh, in some way, propitiated for everyone everywhere. So, they have a universalism that's hypothetical because no one will come to Christ. Sin has disabled us. Sin has uh, unhinged us. Sin has darkened our minds. Sin has killed us before God. And so God gives the Holy Spirit to his elect. Um, it's... Benjamin Warfield calls it a family heresy. It belongs to the Calvinistic family. I, I'm not happy with that, actually, myself, but Warfield's one of my great heroes, so when I get to heaven, I'm not going to tell him that, but he'll probably know. Um, so it's, it's a desire to make gospel preaching credible to everyone, everywhere. It's a failure to understand that the call of God to everyone everywhere is rooted in his revealed will that he would have all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Nowhere do you find in the Bible, in the New Testament, anyone saying, um, Christ died for you, therefore come to Christ. They say Jesus Christ was sent into the world to seek and to save the lost, and if you will have him. And that's Boston's great concern. Um, he, he wants people to understand that God seriously and genuinely desires all men and women to be saved. How that relates to the secret will of God, Boston would say that's none of your business. Um, the secret things belong to the Lord. The things revealed belong to us and to our children. So, what would you add or subtract? Well, something that's not helpful. No, you're...
the, the Westminster Minutes, did any, have any of you read the Westminster Minutes? Um, I, you've read them right. I've got the Mitchell and Struthers late 19th century copy, and I've got Chad Van Dixon's five volumes, which someone kindly bought me. In page 151 of the Minutes, they're discussing the eternal decrees. And George Gillespie, a brilliant young Scottish divine who died tragically young, they're discussing it. <clears throat> and Edward Reynolds says, let us not put scholastical things in our confession. You think, well, that's good, that's fine. Gillespie then says, let us frame the sentence so that each man may take his own sense. So there's supralapsarians in the assembly, there's infralapsarians, and there's a mixture in between. And the Westminster Confession is an ecumenical document. It's a self-consciously, generically reformed ecumenical document. It talks about the covenant of works, but also the covenant of life. It, it uses language to be embracive um, and I know of one very fine Reformed scholar whom I have a huge regard for who thinks that chapter 8 on Christ the Mediator, and to use his words, is patient of an Amaraldian interpretation. I can't see it. I, 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 it. It was a major feature in my dissertation, which was on subscription to the standards in Scotland. And Warfield can't see it. And my basic rule of thumb is if Warfield and Calvin can't see it, if I think I do, there's something wrong with me. Um, but this friend of mine, um, Donald MacLeod, actually, Free Church of Scotland College, he wrote an article many years ago, and it struck me at the time that he thinks that it's patient of an Amaraldian interpretation. Uh, but you'd have to get an Amaraldian hypothetical universalist. It's a little different, but um, you'd have to get someone who is from that stable to say to you, this is how I interpret this text. That's quite a common feature, actually, at the Reformation and in the 17th century. When Calvin returns to Geneva in 1541, he's got two conditions. Do you remember? Number one, that the church be given the sole right of excommunication, not in alliance with the state, uh, and that he be allowed to write a catechism because the church will die without creeds and catechisms. So Calvin and the Council of 200 in Geneva devise this, what becomes the ecclesiastical ordinances, 1541 in Geneva. And Calvin thinks he's got his way, but the council think they've got their way. And when you read the ordinances, you can see why Calvin thinks the church now has the sole right of excommunication. That there's little bits of wriggle room, and that really bedevils Calvin um, up to 1555, because he has constant, he doesn't get a majority in the council till 1555. So Servetus is not burned by Calvin, but by the, by the council. It's only in the latter years that the church, by virtue of Calvin's personality and uh, ability, is able to make excommunication. But the, the, the point is that the ordinances were constructed so that each man may make his own sense. And the confession of faith is a bit like that in places. It's not monochrome. It's not hard-nosed. It's uh, the 126 or so divines, the variety. There were Presbyterians, independents, Congregationalists, hypothetical universalists. Robert Bailey, in his, in, in his journal, he's one of the Scots commissioners, says, Amiro, Amiraldian, Moise Amiro was a French theologian at Samur, um, uh, influenced by John Cameron, a Scot. 
Amuro is being handed round this assembly, and many, said Bailey, as a Scot he was exaggerating, but many are more inclined to his fancies than I ever thought. And it's amazing, because Amuro's work on the atonement is only published in 1637. I actually looked at a first edition copy at Cambridge University Library. Um, and it's like hot off the press. It's been handed round the assembly as they're discussing how do we frame um, the, the chapter in Christ the Mediator. Oh, it's, wow, that's really astonishing. You're all a bit weary, so. <clears throat> so I have kind of a practical question off of the hypothetical universalism discussion. My understanding of the history is that one of the things the Marrow men would say that troubled others in the Church of Scotland was they would say to the unbeliever or to the recipient of their preaching, Christ is dead for you. Yeah. And I've heard people suggest there's a difference between that and Christ died for you. Yes. I wonder if you could explain that and comment on it. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I should have done this earlier. I don't think for Edward Fisher there is a difference, but for Thomas Boston there's a huge difference. How many of you have ever said at any time in your preaching or in your witnessing to anyone, Christ is dead for you? When the General Assembly saw that in the marrow, alarm bells went off. You're telling people that Christ died for them. That means you're a universalist in the sense not that your people will be saved, all be saved, but you're saying there's been a universal atonement. Christ did not propitiate for the elect. Now, Boston's response was, no, you misunderstand the marrow. I think he understood, misunderstood the marrow. You misunderstand the marrow because what that is saying is, it is a crucified saviour that God holds out to the world. It's a, a Christ who is dead, who, who is crucified. Um, we preach Christ and him crucified. That's all it means, Boston's saying. And so one of the questions that, that I often raise with my students is, beware of using novel language, of complex language when you're speaking, especially about the cross, um, Beware of unguarded um, statements. Um, and I think that was part of the problem because the Westminster Confession, which was the church's subordinate standard that every minister had to subscribe ex animo simpliciter, uh, mentally, without reservation, is very clear. Um, Christ died for the elect. Um, so, I think Boston was wrong in exegeting uh, the marrow to mean what it didn't say. But some better scholars than I, I'm, I'm not a scholar, I'm, I'm, I'm a pastor who dabbles, but um, would say that actually you're being too hard on Edward Fisher. Um, he, he may have been a hypothetical universalist, but that's not what he meant there. He simply meant Christ should be offered promiscuously as a crucified saviour to the world. But I do think it's interesting that between the first and second editions of the Marrow, 1645-1646, that to get it through the censors, the Westminster divine, you know, a number of divines were appointed to censor theological works, that Fisher takes out his guarded comments on two antinomians, Tobias Crisp and, is it Salkin? Whoever it was. Um, and he puts in more to show that he's on the side of the angels, more of the divines. And that's why John Trapp, a little later, called Edward Fisher a sly antinomian. Now, whether he's right or not, I don't know. So, but for Boston, Christ is dead for you simply meant I can hold out Jesus Christ to everyone everywhere. But 
That's not what the language suggested. And that's why the assembly called it detestable unsound doctrine. We're saying the same thing, but saying it differently. Can, can you help me understand that a little bit better? Well, hopefully. Um, this, this goes back to Calvin. Uh, Calvin writes in the Institutes clearly and ambiguously that assurance belongs to the essence of saving faith. You don't have assurance, you don't have saving faith. The problem is folk don't read what Calvin writes after that. I'll come to Boston. So Calvin then writes after that, if memory serves me right. He says, um, but of course there will be seasons when we struggle with assurance, when um, darkness falls upon us. You know, you, you may well quote some of the Psalms. You know, darkness is my only friend, Psalm 88. So what's Calvin saying then? Well, he's saying that faith, if it's faith in Jesus Christ, has to be an assured faith. It means you're trusting Christ to save you. So by its definition, definitionally, assurance belongs to the essence of saving faith. But practically, experientially, um, it may suffer eclipses, highs and lows and whatever. So fast forward uh, 150 years to Boston and the Marrow. The men who opposed the Marrow, even the good evangelicals, they read the Westminster Confession, which says, which really is more concerned with the experiential side of assurance than with the definitional side of assurance. And when they read in the Marrow of Modern Divinity and in the Boston and the others' representation to the assembly that assurance belonged to the essence of saving faith, that just rang alarm bells. You're saying that poor people who struggle and who, 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 who suffer seasons of darkness, you're saying that they're not Christians. In Boston, I just read a sermon, not just, maybe three or four months ago, a sermon of Boston's, uh, I've got Boston's work, so where, where is it? It's quite late on, oh, I can't remember. Um, and I thought, this is just the Westminster Confession. Boston is saying, you know, assurance suffers grievously because of physical conditions, mental conditions, spiritual conditions. Um, we must never forget that we're held by Christ. That's our assurance, not that we feel it, perhaps, but that we have it. So that's why we need to be careful when we talk with people and say, well, what, what do you actually mean? Talking about...